This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Merry Christmas and welcome to the program. And what better way to start today than with our uh, <laughs> our annual playing of the classic James Brown album, Funky Christmas. Hitch up your reindeer uh, and go straight to the ghetto. Santa Claus, go straight to the ghetto. Fill every stocking you find. Kids are gonna love you so uh, Leave a toy for Johnny Leave a doll for Mary Leave something pretty for Donnie And don't forget about Gary Santa Claus uh, Go straight to the ghetto That selection being the notable Santa Claus goes straight to the ghetto he was a gifted musician and quite an influential one in, in American musical history, but uh, we just love James Brown for all that and his incredible campiness. And since today is Christmas Day, we should do another, I think, Mr. McMillan, if you just cue this up, another all-time Christmas special. Anyway, in today's program, uh, we're going to try and go back to our archives, at least in our third segment today, and air one of our longtime favorites. We mentioned a few weeks back that it was, in fact, the 70th anniversary this year of the famous War of the Worlds broadcast by Orson Welles. Since we missed playing that on Halloween, I think we're going to play that for today's program. Not exactly a Christmassy theme, uh, we'll admit, but, uh, but it's a good tale. We like it, and so uh, we're going to play that for you in segment three. Before we start with uh, uh, this day in history, something we like to start the program with, we should mention that um, Christmas Day, of course, is the traditional date recognized for the birth of Jesus. It seems absolutely clear to historians, however, that this was not, in fact, his birthday. The story of the Nativity appears in only two of the Gospels, and uh, they make reference to uh, the time of the birth being when the shepherds were with their flocks in the fields. That's something that takes place in the spring of the year, not the dead of winter. And of course, we're also stuck with the fact that uh, that when they originally tried to figure out which year this took place in, the monk uh, that was doing it got pretty close, but did not get it right. It's now believed that the birth of Christ uh, probably took place in, in the year negative 6 BC. The confusion is compounded by the fact that there was no year zero. They weren't using zero in the Middle Ages in, in uh, the mathematics of the Western world. So yes, it's very confusing. But the nativity was apparently something that Christianity later grafted on uh, to what was already a very popular holiday in ancient Rome. This was a celebration approximating the winter solstice called the Saturnalia. 
It was at first uh, celebrated on December 17th, but it became so popular that it soon lasted a week. Saturn was the god of sowing, and uh, the holiday was a time to honor him. It was a festival day. There was a public banquet uh, prepared. There was uh, quite a few fun and games, uh, so many fun and games that Augustus tried to reduce it to three days, unsuccessfully. And uh, curiously, it appears that some of our Christmas traditions uh, owe a debt to the Saturnalia. It was a time of celebration, a time of visits to friends, and gift-giving. Apparently, wax candles were quite popular, along with earthenware figurines. What was described as the best part of the Saturnalia, at least for slaves, was the temporary reversal of roles. Traditionally on the holiday, masters served meals to their slaves who were permitted the unaccustomed luxuries of leisure and gambling. Anyway, when Christianity became the state religion of Rome, it was basically grafted onto this uh, prefabricated holiday, and um, it's been with us ever since. You may have caught uh, uh, some discussions about a, about a new book, The Man Who Invented Christmas, by author Les Standiford, who basically describes how um, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol really revived the modern tradition of, uh, of Christmas celebrations, at least in the U.K., and was very influential in the United States as well. The book uh, was apparently written in six weeks in 1843, and uh, revived the fortunes of Charles Dickens, who, uh, who had been floundering a bit uh, professionally. It's a nice article, uh, a nice piece in the Bee by Rich Lowry, editor of the National Review. And <laughs> there's a publication we don't quote from too often. But uh, wrote uh, Rich Lowry, Christmas or- originally replaced the Roman festival of Saturnalia, and people engaged in the same kind of revelry as in pagan days. Upstanding Christian leaders recoiled from the riotousness in England, the Reverend Henry Bourne of Newcastle called Christmas a pretense for drunkenness and rioting and wantonness. In America, the Puritan Cotton Mather thunders, thundered, in America, the Puritan Cotton Mather thundered, Christ's nativity is spent in reveling, dicing, carding, masking, and in all licentious liberty. And to him, that was not a good thing. Well, we certainly owe um, a debt, if that's the word, for Christmas uh, being celebrated the way it is today to Charles Dickens. And also, as we mentioned a few years back on this program, oddly enough, the Coca-Cola Company, which in advertisements dating back to the 1930s featured Santa Claus wearing the colors of uh, the beverage company, red and white, which really shaped how we think of Santa even today. And of course... uh, (laughs) All the merchandisers of, of, of America and the world have done their part to make, uh, to make Christmas the, um, the gift-giving frenzy that it, that it is in contemporary uh, America and, and the rest of the world. We'll hopefully have more to say about the Christmas spirit and what that means a little bit later in today's show. Because I think it is, it is possible to say some good things about Christmas in spite of its commercialism, um, even if you are an agnostic and have, have no, uh, no association of this holiday with its you know, traditional religious value. Anyway, let's, uh, let's start properly with On This Date in History, starting with the year 274. Lucius Domitius Aurelianus, also known as Aurelian, one of Rome's great emperors, tried to achieve more unity in the empire by establishing Sol Invictus, a sun god, as the supreme god. He inaugurated a new temple to celebrate the god's birth on this day and made it a national holiday. 
which also to some degree set the stage for what followed in the 3rd century AD when when the emperor Constantine converted to Christianity and and all the all the beautiful people followed. And in fact, in that century in the year 336, we find the earliest historical mention of Christmas being celebrated in Rome on this day. It's found in a book written by Furius Dionysius Philocalus, who apparently wrote about it in the year 354. And in the year 875, Charles the Bald became emperor of Rome. His reign was marked by a rise in the power of nobles that ultimately resulted in the local beginnings of feudalism. And we cite this not so much for its historical importance as the fact that we like to say Charles the Bald. And on this date in the year 1223, St. Francis of Assisi created what may be the first Christmas crib, the forerunner of a nativity scene in the town of Grecio, Italy, to allow the community to better picture the miracle of Christ's birth in Bethlehem. And although we know from our our talk about Genghis Khan earlier this year that uh, the Mongols did have Christians among them, on the year 1241, they did a very unchristian thing under their leader, Batu Khan, that being the overrunning of Budapest and leaving it, quote, in ashes, unquote. On this date in 1896, American composer John Philip Sousa, someone we Portuguese Americans can be very proud of, completed The Stars and Stripes Forever, which really ought to be the United States' national anthem. I mean, let's face it, the Star Spangled Banner an embarrassment. And why they find it necessary to sing it before baseball and football games, well, I I just don't know. But that's yet another aspect of American life that would be improved if we were to make the Stars and Stripes Forever the new national anthem. And it was on this date in 1950 that Scottish nationalists stole the coronation stone, known as the Stone of Scone, I hope I'm saying that right, from Westminster Abbey. Edward I, in 1296, originally took the 485-pound stone from Scone, or Scone, in Scotland, and I guess they finally returned it to Westminster Abbey in April of the next year. Presumably, the security at Westminster Abbey was tightened up after this event. Anyway, I I knew that uh, I had all the material I needed for today's show when on the same day, The Economist, The Week, and New Scientist all showed up at my door. Probably our three favorite sources, along with, I suppose, the Sacramento Bee and Sacramento News and Review. And it is from the week's end-of-year quiz that we get today's quote of the day. In fact, well, we'll put it in quiz form and not identify till the end who said the following. I'm not looking at poll numbers. What I think Americans, at the end of the day, are going to be able to go back and look at track records and see who's more apt to be talking about solutions and wishing for and hoping for solutions for some opportunity to change, and who's actually done it. And if you said Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, go to the head of the class. I did get quite a, quite a kick out of going to a party a couple months back out in one of the more conservative areas in Roseville, and uh, I, I was with some arch-Republicans who were just shaking their head at the prospect of Barack Obama, this inexperienced individual, becoming president. He needs executive experience like that of a governor, they said. After all, George W. Bush was a governor before he became president. And if nowhere in her executive experience she actually learned that Africa was a continent, not in fact a country, well, no problem. They'll just, you know, they'll prep her before she actually, you know, 
she'd be prepped before she became president. And our quip of the day comes from radio legend Paul Harvey, who once said, in times like these, it helps to recall that there have always been times like these. Our statistic of the day, and in fact, we have so many of them here, uh, looking back at 08, that we'll take several statistics of the year. How about this one? 81% of American adults now use the internet. 89% have mobile phones. 14% have given up their landlines altogether. And 66% have sought health information online. There is some optimism in the country. 71% of the people say they're optimistic about the upcoming Barack Obama presidency, including 50% of people who voted against him. But uh, 76% of Americans say our country is headed down the wrong track, while 83% feel that the people in Washington are out of touch with the rest of the country. Hello? 59% of Americans said if they could, they'd throw out every member of Congress and start over. Our uh, joke headline of the day comes from The Onion, which opened up with, Scientists warn large Earth collider may destroy Earth. Batavia, Illinois. Fermilab scientists joined a growing number of physicists around the world in warning that the Very Large Earth Collider, a $117 billion electromagnetic particle accelerator built to study astronomical phenomenon by colliding Earth into various heavenly bodies, could potentially destroy the Earth when it sends it careening headlong into Mars, Venus, or Jupiter, said Fermilab director Joseph Gordon's because the collider achieves this by hurling the Earth into another large celestial object, there are some who feel the risks associated with annihilating our world are too high. All I know for certain is this rigorous debate will end only when we activate the LVEC and make the Earth collide with another planet and obtain the results through first-hand observation. That's just good science. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for unlimited minutes after American Funeral Director magazine reported a new trend, people being buried with their cell phones. Said spokesman Pam Vetter, I've seen people leave cell phones on and tell me they're going to call their loved ones later. Not that anyone will answer, but they want to have that connection. Boy, where do you see the roaming charges on that one? But, um... It was a bad week, conversely, for perspective after a Catholic cardinal in Chile denounced Madonna's, quote, incredibly shameful behavior, unquote, at a concert in Santiago and called her an offensive god. Cardinal Jorge Medina made the remarks at a mass for the late dictator Augusto Pinochet, under whose rule tens of thousands of political opponents were executed tortured, or simply disappeared. I must say, as a fallen Catholic myself, I, uh, I've always wondered about the fact that the Church has decided to take such an aggressive stance on the abortion question, when throughout World War II, they just didn't seem to have what it took to denounce the actions of Adolf Hitler. But this is Christmas, I, I think I'll just let it go at that. And finally, it was an ugly week for... <laughs> 
those directing public relations in the American automotive industry. And to quote from the Associated Press, a Chevrolet dealer in Hilo, Hawaii, who tried to crush his Asian auto company, who tried to crush his Asian auto competition, found the stunt a little harder to pull off than expected. Apparently, Island Chevrolet's general sales manager, James Severson, arranged for a Chevrolet Suburban arranged for a Chevrolet Suburban SUV outfitted with giant tires to drive over a Honda Accord. However, in attempting this last week, the monster truck blew a hydraulic hose while the Honda remained intact. And you wonder, with thinking like this, why the big three automakers are floundering. All right, from the Only in America file, we have an item. Apparently, uh, after Fox Sports went live to the Minnesota Vikings locker room a couple weeks back, it treated viewers to a full frontal nude shot of tight end Visanth Shianko. Shianko said his teammates are now calling him the equipment manager. When informed that his penis had appeared on national television, Shianko asked, well, how did it look? <laughs> anyway... You don't think it's fun doing a radio show? Well, you'd be wrong. We admit it can be hard work, but <laughs> doggone it, it's enjoyable. We're happy to note also that uh, eight months after a prostitution scandal forced him to resign as governor of New York, Elliot Spitzer returned to public life last week as a columnist for Slate.com. Spitzer will be writing regularly about the economy. He's terribly frustrated about all the recent developments on Wall Street, a former aide told the Buffalo News, and feels it would have been his moment had it not been for the downfall he brought upon himself. You may recall we read from an Elliot Spitzer essay written, in la written last February on this program some time back, wherein he described how his efforts and the efforts of other attorneys general, all 50 of them, were thwarted by the federal government when they tried to intervene and look into some of the financial shenanigans going on on Wall Street. And I had to get a laugh uh, out of last Sunday's paper, that Wall Street Journal section they have, I know, in the Sacramento Bee, and I'm sure many other papers around the, the country and world, uh, article by Mary Pillon on how to steer clear of shady advisors. This uh, apparently national column gives you some of the following sage advice. Like, make sure you get a statement from your advisor's firm, not your advisor. Apparently, Bernard Madoff used to send people out uh, updates on how they were doing uh, based on something he printed on his home computer with a dot matrix printer, something which apparently failed to arouse the suspicions of America's sophisticated business investors. Mary Pillen also suggests that you should be wary about writing checks directly to your advisor. They should go to a registered investment company. Boy, now, who hasn't made that mistake? Although I, I must say there was a moment of humor uh, a year or so ago when I was in AIG adding to my, <laughs> wisely adding to my retirement fund when I was about to make the check out. And I said, who should I make this out to? And the advisor said, to me, <laughs> looked at me for a couple seconds, followed by a, just kidding. Hey, but last year I said that to a guy, he started writing my name in. I'm sorry, I cannot resist from quoting from this, this, this advice for the sophisticated uh, investor. Get it in writing. Make sure that both your investments and their explanations are spelled out in writing for future reference. 
And they note, and while you're at it, read the fine print. Be extremely suspicious if there's no fine print to read. And the final great piece of advice was, if you've been a victim of fraud or are suspicious, report it. The SEC has a tip and complaint form on its website. Yes, this is the same SEC that was repeatedly tipped off that Bernard Madoff was up to no good and failed to discern that his Ponzi scheme had some problems with it. Oh my. Anyway, I was somewhat cheered by the fact that uh, CNN reported that a recent poll showed that 23% of the public thinks that Dick Cheney is the worst vice president ever. In addition, 41% of those polled felt that Cheney is a poor vice president. Chris, you know, as, as polls reveal strange data, apparently 1% of the public believes that Dick Cheney is the best vice president in U.S. history. And no, we're not able to confirm whether these are the same people who think that O.J. Simpson is innocent or that Geraldo Rivera is the best damn journalist in America. Let's take a moment now to hear from our good pal, Will Durst. Well, thanks, Doug. And today I just want to talk about the most wonderful time of the year, which is now, ask anybody. Uh, they'll tell you. Over and over and over again. They've been telling me since November 1st. That's when one of my local radio stations went Christmas music 24-7. We're talking two whole months, an entire sixth of the year, longer than a San Francisco summer. And this wonderful time of the year is proving to be a bit less than, because people like you and me stubbornly refuse to quit our selfish whining and go out there and do our patriotic duty by sinking deeply into debt to honor the birth of that Jewish hippie kid and buying stuff we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. The economy is so bad, I wouldn't be surprised to find Governor Rod Blagojevich offered free shipping with Barack Obama's Senate seat. But as Vice President Cheney so often has said, stuff happens. So to ensure that some traditions don't get tossed out with the bathwater, let me offer up my annual, scathingly incisive yet curiously refreshing, Will Durst's Christmas gift wish list for 2008. For the U.S. Treasury, a couple of additional cabinet appointments involving sitting senators allowing for more Senate seats to be put up for sale to the highest bidder, and then we get all the money. For the U.S. Congress, a spine to stand up to these guys who cry broke and then refuse to give an account to what they did with the money. For Sarah Palin's daughter's baby daddy mama who just got busted for OxyContin. Something on Sarah. For Mitt Romney and the rest of the Republican National Committee looking at 2012. Something on Sarah. For O.J. Simpson, a bumper sticker to hang in a cell that says what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. For medical science. Dick Cheney's heart to study, and George Bush's brain. For Joe Biden, a muzzle. For Barack Obama, a muzzle. For Joe Biden, for George Bush, a shoe-repelling umbrella. And finally, for Bill Clinton, an appointment as ambassador to Sweden. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Happy Mary, everybody. May the corpulent bearded one in the scarlet suit smile upon your chosen shrubbery. He is, ladies and gentlemen, America's foremost political comic, and we're pleased that we can bring you him every week. 
All right, let's take a short break and, and go out with that patriotic theme song, The Stars and Stripes Forever. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got plenty more in segment two. Stay tuned. <laughs> 